Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 6, The Oresteia, Part 2. Last time, we delved into the blood-soaked world of Agamemnon. As we return and the audience settle back into their seats, perhaps wishing that they had bought a warmer cloak or a soft cushion, but thankful for the warming sun, the closing of the doors at the end of Agamemnon are still figuratively ringing in our ears. The images linger. The watchman, seeing the universal order turn and turn as he waits for the word of victory at Troy. Clytemnestra's recounting of the journey of the beacons across Attica. The grandeur of the arrival of Agamemnon and his hubris as he walks onto the crimson carpet. Cassandra's strange, misunderstood prophecies. The standoff between Aegisthus and the chorus and perhaps, most of all, the tableau of Clytemnestra holding the bloody axe over the bodies of Agamemnon and Cassandra. But time has moved on, several years to be precise, and the focus changes to the revenge taken on Clytemnestra and Aegisthus by the next generation, and how this cycle of revenge can be concluded. Clytemnestra's children, Orestes and Electra, take centre stage. This second play, Coephore in the Greek but generally translated as the Libation Bearers, opens with Orestes visiting the tomb of his father. He's been accompanied by Pylades, the son of the king of Phocis, where he has spent his exile. No choral ode or prologue here, but straight into the action. This definitely has the feeling of picking up where we left off, despite the time lapse. Orestes mourns his father over the tomb, and then cuts a lock of his hair and places it there, something that could actually have been acted as some asks had real hair attached to them. We learn that he's come at at this moment by order of Apollo to restore the correct order to the house of Argos. As they hear people approaching, they hide. Electra enters with the chorus, this time playing her serving women, the libation bearers of the title. Electra has been awaiting the return of Orestes and visiting the tomb regularly to lament and give offering, and so they do again. But, we learn, that this time Clytemnestra has instructed them to make offerings, as she's been haunted by a nightmare in which the dead promise revenge on her. As Electra concludes her lamentation and offerings, she spots the lock of hair and recognises it as similar to her brother's. She then sees a footprint that matches hers and is convinced that he must be close. It's a weak plot point, as there would not necessarily be any sibling similarity between hair and feet, but we forge onwards. Orestes is forced to reveal himself. Electra takes little convincing that this is indeed her returned brother and urges him to exact revenge on their mother and Aegisthus, who has been ruling Argos in the intervening years. Once again, the plot is driven by the passions of women, but Orestes, in turn, takes little convincing and exclaims that he is acting on Apollo's command and he must carry out the deed. He lists his motives for revenge his personal grief, reclaiming his birthright and rescuing the people from the cruel rule of Aegisthus. The hatred that both siblings feel towards him in particular is laid out in the terrible ends they envisage for him. Orestes describes his plan to enter the palace. Then shall I win my way, and if I cross the threshold of the gate and the palace guard and find him throned where my father sat, or if he comes by and face to face confronting, drop his eyes from mine, I swear he shall not utter, Who art thou and whence, before my sword shall leap and take him to his death. There he'll lie, with heavy-laden doom, the fury of the house shall drain once more a deep third draught of rich unmingled blood. 
Orestes' understanding of Apollo's command is that, to restore the correct balance, he must kill not only Aegisthus, but his mother. Maintaining balance and order are a central theme. Remember the ordered stars at the opening of the trilogy. The scene changes to Orestes and Pylades arriving at the palace disguised as travellers. They request hospitality, recalling the breaking of that firmly held rule that sparked the Trojan War, and then speak with Clytemnestra, who does not recognise her son. The fact that they see her rather than Aegisthus gives the impression that she is still in charge, and Aegisthus just the figurehead. She recounts her dream to them before they test her by telling her that Orestes is dead. She feigns grief, but cannot hide that she is in fact happy to hear of his demise, as it solidifies her position. She hurries off to inform Aegisthus. Orestes' childhood nurse enters, having been sent to find Aegisthus, who cannot be found in the palace. She tells more of Clytemnestra's cruel behaviours, and Orestes' resolve hardens. It's the first time that Aeschylus has used the third actor in a play to progress the plot rather than just comment on it. All three exit to the palace. Aegisthus enters briefly and then goes into the palace, where he is swiftly dispatched by Orestes. The chorus are briefly alone and wonder at the events unfolding in the palace until Clytemnestra enters and the palace doors open, revealing the tableau of Orestes killing Aegisthus. She realises the game is up and pleads with Orestes to take pity on her. Stay, child, and fear to strike. O son, this breast pillowed your head often while drowsy with sleep. Your toothless mouth drew mother's milk from me. Of course, we know even now that she is lying, having been introduced to the wet nurse. The nurse's genuine love for Orestes is contrasted here. There's a collective shaking of heads in the audience and a murmur of manly woman as they hear Clytemnestra's protests. Orestes hesitates briefly, sensing the enormity of the act that he has to commit, but Pylades speaks, these are his only lines in the entire play. Where then would fall the order Apollo gave at Delphi, where the solemn compact was sworn? Choose the hate of all men, not that of the gods. His encouragement of Orestes makes him pivotal in the progression of the play. He has the voice of the old ways, of honouring the wishes of the gods as paramount. The significance is not completely apparent here, but we hear its echo later in the drama of the third play, Eumenides. Persuaded, Orestes pulls his mother to the palace doors. She curses her son. Her last words are, Ah me, this snake it was I bore and nursed. And again, the great doors firmly shut. Everyone knows we will not see Clytemnestra alive again. When the doors open for the tableau of Orestes standing over both bodies, his long speech takes us right back to Agamemnon, as he displays the clothes his father was killed in. The chorus praises Orestes' bravery and for relieving the citizens of the tyranny of Aegisthus. But this does not outweigh the echo of the theme from Agamemnon that none can escape this suffering once the course is set. Orestes himself is revolted by what he has done, what he had to do, and has a vision of the terrifying furies closing in on him. He cries out, Look, look, alas, handmaidens, see what gorgon shapes appear. Dusky their robes, and all their hair tangled, snakes coiled with snakes. Off, off, I must fly. O King Apollo, see they swarm, they throng, black blood of hatred dripping from their eyes. Here it's clearly a vision not acted out, but we will see more of the Furies later. 
In fear, he rushes off to voluntary exile and the chorus exit, wondering when the cycle of misfortune will end. Although the chorus is given the very last lines, it is effectively the long speech of by Orestes that ends the play. It's something of an innovation that the focus is quite so much on the inner thoughts of a single character. Some commentators suggest that this is the very beginning of the great theatrical tool, the soliloquy. Libation Bearers is a short piece and direct, very much a bridge between the other two parts of the trilogy. It feels like there's an urgency to get through this part of the story and onto the greater issues discussed in the final part. In performance, it's less than an hour long. Now, that's not to say that there isn't some interest in it. The strength of feeling expressed by the revenging siblings and the moral dilemma suffered by Orestes, even when acting in his mind under the command of Apollo, are attempts at characterisation. But it's less than subtle, especially when we see it against the treatment of the same tale by Euripides. However, it does get us to Eumenides, the first known courtroom drama. But we don't start in the courtroom. The play opens at the Shrine of Apollo in Delphi. This was the best-known oracle in the Greek world and would have been instantly recognisable to the audience. The oracle sat on a three-legged stool that was placed over a steaming fissure in the rock. It's presumed that some form of natural gas admitting there induced the prophetic trance. There's a prologue, with the priestess praying to Zeus and Apollo. She recounts the names of her predecessors, significantly all women, who ruled in Delphi before Apollo took over the shrine. There's the idea of men taking over from the women, women who are in tune with the natural world, whereas the male is all about organising, building and bringing order to nature. During that prayer, she spots the sleeping furies within the sanctuary and runs off in fright. She gives a vivid description of the terrifying creatures. Crouched on the altar steps, a grisly band of women slumbers, not much like women, but gorgons rather. No, that word is weak, nor may I match the gorgon's shape with theirs. These are wingless, black, and all their shape, the eyes abomination to behold. Foul is the breath, let none draw near it, that exudes the damned drops of poisonous anger. And such their garb as none should dare to bring, to statues of gods or homes of men. I know not of the tribe wherefrom can so foul a legion, nor from what land of earth could rear unharmed such creatures. These are truly hideous animals. In mythology, they're either some form of the most ancient beings who were not born but just exist, or the result of the titan Kronos castrating his father Uranus and throwing his genitalia into the sea. The furies emerged from the drops of blood in the water. In the Iliad, they're described as subterranean beings who take vengeance on any man who has sworn a false oath. Here, they pursue Orestes because of the matricide. As such, they can also be seen as physical manifestation of his guilt at the horrendous act. When Orestes then enters seeking sanctuary from the Furies, the audience must have been on the edge of their seats. Only a short while before, they'd seen him running for his life in fear of these same creatures. Apollo offers Orestes protection, but then the ghost of Clytemnestra appears. She is full of bitterness and goads the Furies to plague Orestes more. Apollo attempts to expel them from the sanctuary, but they resist, saying that he must take some blame for this situation, as he ordered Orestes to perform the murder of his mother. Who is guilty? Of which crime? Who deserves punishment? And how will justice be administered? Brings us to the core of the argument of the play. 
Apollo sends Orestes to appeal for Athena's help. She is the goddess of wisdom and, of course, the patron saint of Athens, and he requires her impartial judgement. The scene changes to Athens. The play is coming home. As mentioned before, this is originally a Spartan myth, but Aeschylus changes the location to Athens and also remember that the audience are in the theatre in the religious temple complex below the Parthenon. Athena's image in statues and her presence as patron of the city would have been all around them. The change of location makes the play, and therefore the whole trilogy, about Athens and the Athenian way. After a choral ode, the goddess appears, saying that she has been fighting at the Battle of Sergion, a fort recovered by the Athenians from the Persians in 465 BCE. This was near the site of Troy, and the following lines recall that war, emphasising Athenian involvement more than Homer ever did. Aeschylus certainly knew how to play to his audience. Now we are in the courtroom. Athena asks Orestes to defend himself. His line of defence is that his suffering and Apollo's intervention purify him from guilt. The Furies, acting as the prosecutors, argue that justice will fail for all if exceptions are made to the old laws, those laws demanding revenge for blood, especially for severe crimes. Orestes repeats his defence that he was acting on Apollo's command and the god is called. Apollo accepts responsibility for Orestes' act, agreeing that the killing of a parent is the worst crime of all. But Clytemnestra's murder of Agamemnon, he argues, was the greater crime in this case, because she had not truly mothered Orestes, having passed that responsibility to the nurse. He also suggests that women are only vessels for the growing child and have no real connection with the offspring compared to that of the father of the child. Now this argument seems very weak to us, and it's hard to believe that the contemporary audience found it any more plausible. Perhaps some of them did. This stance may play on the contemporary fears of the influence and role of women in society. Apollo is essentially arguing for the continuation of the patriarchal society by inherent right, but it falls flat. Athena says this matter is too weighty even for her alone, and she convenes a jury of Athenians to pass judgement on Orestes. She realises that if she condemns Orestes herself, it will only begin another cycle of revenge over the coming generations. She will decide punishment but the peers will decide innocence or guilt. It's an early representation of the jury system we still use today, where judgment of innocence or guilt is separated from the punishment, which is decided on and performed by the state in the light of the judgment. The judge's opinion is sought and they vote. The decision is tied, so the casting vote goes to Athena. She has no mother having been born fully formed from the brow of Zeus, and so agrees with Apollo that the tie to the father is the greater and finds Orestes not guilty. Athena then announces the establishment of a permanent court to settle disputes in the city. So democracy and civil justice replace vendetta and blood-for-blood revenge. This condones and even praises the transition Athens had been making and was no doubt well received by the city grandees who were guiding that project. The Furies are angered by the verdict, though, and threaten to cause havoc in the city. But Athena placates them with reasoned argument and calm words. Eventually they accept the verdict and are persuaded to follow Athena and take on a more kindly, supportive role in Athens in future. They become the Eumenides, or the Kindly Ones. The final call ode praises the goddess and looks forward optimistically to the city's prospects under the rule of law.
Even through the courtroom-set ending of the play, the presence of the Furies seemed to dominate. The extent to which they were represented, how frightening they were, how costumed, how made up, and how they moved on stage is not known. The text suggests that they could have been portrayed in a very ghoulish fashion, making full use of costume, makeup, and movement to make them appear supernatural, but we just don't have the evidence to prove the portrayal one way or the other. Greek drama was largely drama of the imagination, where the poetry did the heavy lifting. But could the poets really have resisted making these creatures as dramatic as possible? They would have been well aware of the impact of the visual effect, especially if it was something that had not been seen before, so a very physical performance, with every element used to its greatest possible effect, is plausible. In Eumenides, characterisation suffers in deference to the expression of the moral dilemma and the wish to espouse the emergence of the judicial system, but that central argument is also problematic. The vaunted judicial system is really not very effective. The vote by the human judges is tied, and the decision has to be left to the gods, who use ancient logic rooted in their own creation to decide that Orestes is innocent. Maybe it was Aeschylus's religious conservatism that made him show that the final decisions still rest with the gods, or maybe his own feelings towards the new justice were in fact ambivalent. Commentators portray him as socially and religiously conservative, but think he was exiled for breaking religious conventions. So how do those two marry up? It suggests that his own thoughts and feelings were conflicted, and for me, this ambivalence hangs over the end of the trilogy. As that first audience of the Oresteia made their way back down to the town, I'm not sure if they were feeling exhilarated, impassioned, a bit confused or just tired. I think we can be sure that they were looking forward to the evening's entertainment, relaxing and having the chance to discuss the plays. The trilogy had taken them through the criticism of monarchy in Agamemnon, to the horror of tyranny in the Libation Bearers, and attempted to praise democracy and civil justice in Eumenides. They've been presented with a treatise on the power and influence of women, which attempts to address many of the complexities of the gender relationships, but ultimately remains ambivalent. Surely, over a drink and a meal later that night, the men would still have felt safe in the knowledge that the female place was securely in the home and nowhere near influencing political life. Athena herself is part of that ambivalence, having both male and female attributes in her character and role in the pantheon of the gods. Of course, great drama does not have to answer all the questions, just present them to us with argument and for consideration. But one thing Aeschylus does not compromise on is the belief that negotiation, compromise and balance applied to Athenian politics is the way forward, to a glorious future for the city. And two and a half thousand years later, we would probably still agree with him. Next time, we'll look at the life of Sophocles. He lived for 90 years and his life and plays are entwined with both the Athenian Golden Age and wars, the Persian invasions and the Peloponnesian War. The struggle for the survival of the very concept of Athenian democracy influences his views. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns, in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter on thoetp. And finally, I should like to give a nod to E.D. Morshead, whose translations I have used and adapted for the Oresteia and the Persians.
He's no longer around to hear my appreciation or to cringe at my adaptations of his work, but I'm still appreciative. If you do feel inspired to read these plays, and I hope you do if you can't get to see them being performed, I would recommend you look for more modern translations. But for the podcast, I've had to stick to using out-of-copyright works, as the complexities of getting quotations authorised for a global product like a podcast are too complex and, frankly, for the lone podcaster, too expensive. Morshead was something of an eccentric late Victorian Oxford classicist who chose to render his translations, not inappropriately, in metred rhyme. I've updated that somewhat arcane language in places, so I'm entirely to blame for any damage this causes to his text and purpose. He died over a hundred years ago, so you can read his translations for free on the internet if you have a mind. If you do, have a look out for the I-rhymes he often used, where words that are spelled similarly but pronounced differently are paired in close proximity in the text. Just a bit of scholarly fun, I think. Thank mm-hmm. you.